Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Um, And I would like to begin uh, our sermon this morning with a question, and that is, what is worship? Now, I imagine that when I ask that question, there are a number of things that come to your mind. Uh, Worship is praise with musical accompaniment, or worship is thanksgiving, or worship is the declaration of God's mighty Deeds, worship is, etc., and etc. Now, while those answers are indeed correct, and of course we could add many more to them, those answers are not the root matter when it comes to worship. Now, let's say we were to ask that same question what is worship? Not to us in the 21st century, but to an ancient Israelite. What is worship? Now, I suspect we would get a much different answer. And I think it would go something like this. Worship is sacrifice. Worship of God is sacrifice. And if you were to ask him, okay, where did you get this definition? Why do you say that worship is sacrifice? He would simply point you to the tabernacle, where day in and day out, sacrifices and offerings of various kind never ceased to be offered before God. For an ancient Israelite, worship was synonymous with what happened at the temple. Worship was synonymous with sacrifice. And so the point that I want to make this morning in regard to our worship is that things have not changed. Worship remains sacrifice. Now, of course, we're not assembled here this morning to offer bulls and goats. But make no mistake, we are here to offer sacrifice to God, to present to Him our offerings. So this is not a service ultimately that's put on for us, but rather it's a service rendered by us. We are here, as Peter says in his first epistle, chapter one or chapter two, verse five, we are here to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're here to offer up spiritual sacrifices. So, worship is sacrifice. That's the point we're going to hammer home this morning. And we break down the sermon into three parts. The first thing we're going to talk about is the purpose of sacrifice. The second thing, or it's really, it's one thing, it's two points, is the fulfillment of sacrifice in Christ, and then the fulfillment of sacrifice in the church. Now, up first is the purpose of sacrifice. And we'll uh, consider this by taking a field trip to the tabernacle. And the plan is to walk through the sacrificial system. That is, what it would have been like if you were an ancient Israelite to go to the tabernacle and to worship God. So we're going to take you through that process to get a sense of what worship was for our ancient brothers and sisters, and, and then having understood that and gotten that sense to come back to our lives 
and to see what it has to tell us about the nature of worship. So, that's the plan. First is this field trip to the tabernacle. Now, Leviticus uses different terms to describe the sacrifices that were offered at the tabernacle. There's burnt offerings, there's uh, guilt offerings, there's sin offerings, there's peace offerings, so on and so forth. But the one word that is common to every sacrifice that was given to God at the tabernacle is offering. All of these sacrifices were termed an offering. Now, in Hebrew, the word is korban, and it literally means to draw near. It means to draw near. So your offering was was a way that you drew near to God. That's important because it means that the sacrificial offering, what you brought to the tabernacle, was the prescribed means by which you could approach God. Now remember, his presence rested in the tabernacle, which was sectioned off from the rest of the people. And the way that someone could draw near to God's presence at the tabernacle, the only way was through an offering, was through sacrifice. Apart from it, if you did not bring some sort of offering, you would not be allowed entrance into the tabernacle you would be left outside in the courtyard. And and listen, that was part of the priest's job. They stood guard at the entrance to the courtyard of the tabernacle. They stood guard at the entrance of the holy place, making sure that no one could enter apart from a sacrifice. So the point is, sacrifice was and always will be the means by which sinful humans can draw near to God. No one was allowed into God's presence apart from a sacrifice. Now hold on to that because we'll come to it later. Now supposing someone did bring a sacrifice. You could imagine yourself in the camp of Israel at the center. Uh, Greg, can you switch the next slide, please? The tabernacle, uh, this structure would have been at the center of the camp. And so let's say you brought your sacrifice. And worship at the tabernacle would begin with what's called the presentation rite. That is, the worshiper, typically the head of the household, would present a sacrificial animal at the entrance of the courtyard to the priests for inspection. So at that colorful gate there, there would be a priest. You would bring your animal, and you would present it to him, and he would inspect it. Now, however, the process began much earlier with a selection of an animal from your herd. Now, depending on how well-to-do someone was, um, they would either bring a bull or a goat or a bird. And now the bird was for the poorest of the poor. In fact, when Jesus is presented at the temple on the eighth day after his birth, Mary and Joseph, they offer two turtle doves because they were destitute, because they were poor. So, Whatever animal it is that you ended up bringing, a bull or a goat or a bird, that animal had to be without defect. It had to be without defect. That is, it could not be maimed or blind or diseased or something like that. So it couldn't be an animal that was going to die anyway. It was of no use to you. Rather, it had to be without defect. 
It had to be a worthy sacrifice, a sound and whole animal. Now, why? And you'll find that in Leviticus, that this emphasis on it being an animal without defect is really important. Now, why is that? And, and the reason is because the sacrificial animal was supposed to represent what the worshiper was not, and that is blameless. It had to be without defect. An animal without defect symbolized a morally blameless life, a life of complete devotion and obedience to God. So you couldn't bring a, a, a maimed animal because what that signified is, of course, a lack of devotion. It signified a life that is not pleasing to God. Now, if we miss this, we miss the point of the entire sacrificial system. God required people to sacrifice animals, yes, but in, in the end, that's not what he really desired. What God really desired was obedience. That is, love. All right, do you remember at the beginning of this series, four weeks ago now, um, the question that we raised as kind of the central matter to everything we're talking about? It comes from Psalm 15. Next slide, please. This is Psalm 15, chapter, or verses 1 through 2. The psalmist asks, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? That's, he's talking about the tabernacle. Who may dwell on your holy hill? He says, He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So the question is, who can draw near to God and abide in his presence at the tabernacle? And the answer is a tamim person. Now, it's translated here as integrity, but literally the word is blameless. Who can draw near to God's presence at the tabernacle? The answer, a blameless person. And so the blameless animal, that is, an animal without defect, was presented to God in the place of the blameworthy worshiper. He was sinful, he was defiled, and therefore he needed a blameless animal in his place. And, th and so through the symbolic righteousness and integrity of the animal, the worshiper was able to draw near to God. So keep that in mind, because we'll return to it later. Now after the animal passed inspection uh, by the priest, ensuring that it was indeed whole and sound, that it was without defect, the worshiper then laid his hand upon the animal's head and he pressed down upon it heavily. And this is what's called the hand-pressing rite. And it's a strange rite, so what's the point of it? Well, it's not a symbolic transfer of sin. It's not a symbolic transfer of sin. That happened only once a year and it was on the Day of Atonement. The, the high priest... Um, he would lay his hand upon the goat's head, and then he would confess over it the sins of the people. He would confess everything uh, wrong that the nation had done. However, that goat upon which he laid his hand and confessed upon it, which we sometimes call the scapegoat, it was not sacrificed. Rather, it was led out into the wilderness. It was taken outside the camp of Israel 
out into the deep wilderness and it was abandoned. In other words, because that goat represented the sins of the people, it was not fit to enter into God's presence. It was sinful. And sinful things are not allowed near God. Anything that could be brought into the temple for the purpose of sacrifice had to be blameless. And so when the worshiper outside the gates of the tabernacle laid his hand upon the head of the animal, whatever it was, it wasn't a symbolic transfer of sin. Rather, it was an identification of the worshiper with the blameless animal. Unable to approach God himself, the blameworthy and defiled worshiper draws near to God through the animal substitute. It takes his place, so to speak. It enters into God's presence on his behalf. He's sinful. The animal represents what is not sinful. So he's able to go in through the animal substitute. Thus, when God accepts the sacrificial animal into his presence, he accepts the worshiper as well. And so after this, this symbolic identification of the worshiper with the blameless animal, it's slaughtered outside the tabernacle. Now, typically, the worshiper would do this himself. And it was typically done by the slitting of the animal's throat, unless it, of course, was a bird. And again, it's not that the animal represents the worshiper's sin, and it therefore needs to be punished, and that it therefore needs to be killed. It's rather that the blameless whole animal representing a human life that's entirely devoted to God is sacrificed in the place of the guilty sinner. So it's not the death of the guilty, but the life of the innocent that permits one to enter into God's presence. So the worshiper identifies with the blameless animal, and then that blameless animal takes his place, as it were. And after the animal is slaughtered, the priest's work begins in earnest. He would collect the, the blood from the animal in a bowl, and then he would take it through the doors of the courtyard into the tabernacle itself, into the courtyard, rather, and then he would take that blood and he would dash, toss, scatter, sprinkle, daub, or simply pour out the blood on one of the sacred objects in the tabernacle courtyard. Now, naturally so far removed from the situation, so far removed from anything resembling animal sacrifice, naturally this seems really strange and maybe morbid to us, taking the blood of the animal and sprinkling it all over the place in worship to God. However, it helps to understand how the Israelites understood the blood. Now, we tend to see blood scientifically, <clears throat> Right in terms of its function to carry oxygen and nutrients to the cells of the body. But in more ancient times, the blood was considered more like the life essence of a creature. Hence, the scripture says, uh, next slide please, Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. It is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. So the blood 
that's taken into the tabernacle and sprinkled upon the objects therein symbolizes life, not death. So in the place of the guilty worshiper, the life of the blameless animal was brought into the holy place and it was offered up to God. And this is what takes away sin. The specific word used here in our verse is atonement. And it means what it sounds like. Through the blood of the blameless animal, God and the worshiper are set at one. That is, they are reconciled to one another. Atonement, at one is made. And so the worshiper is cleansed in the blood of the righteous substitute. So we might be tempted to think that atonement, this implementation of the blood, was the culmination of the sacrificial rite. That after the blood was sprinkled, that it, basically it was over, right? Worship was done with. Well, it's not. In fact, the real good part of sacrifice, the part that really, I, I think, will rejoice your heart, comes after the atonement is made. And it comes in what's called the burning rite, So after the animal's blood is used to make atonement, the animal is then turned into smoke upon the altar. Next slide, please. This is Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, which we just read. It says, The priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now what I want you to notice is the importance of smoke. It's supposed to be offered up in smoke, by fire. So the blameless animal is killed, and then it's taken up to, it's taken to the, the, uh, the, the altar. And this was a fire, basically a barbecue pit that never stopped burning in the midst of the tabernacle courtyard. The animal was dismembered, taken up, and then roasted. Now, this burning rite, the offering is not destroyed, but it's transformed, right? The, the flesh of the blood, the flesh and blood of the animal is converted, so to speak. It's turned into smoke so that it can ascend above into the true dwelling place of God. In fact, that word that we translate as burnt offering um, is, is typically, is what scholars say, is not a great translation, that it could mean something better like ascension offering. It means going up, rising up to God. So this animal that was sacrificed is then turned into smoke and it ascends into God's presence on behalf of the worshiper. And it's received by God, as it says here, a soothing or a pleasing aroma. So the animal ascends into God's presence through smoke. Now once that burning rite was completed, next came the communion rite. So the worshiper, typically alongside his family and friends, was given a portion of the sacrificial meat to eat in God's presence. So it was essentially a shared meal at God's table. So you could imagine, right? You bring this animal from your flock. You present it before the priest. He inspects it. You slaughter it. He collects the blood. He does his part. Then you enter with him into the tabernacle And he roasts the animal. Some of it ascends to God. And then the rest is given to you and oftentimes the priests to eat. It was essentially a meal 
shared with God at his table. And this is so cool. Throughout the scriptures, the altar on which the sacrifice was offered is called the table of the Lord. They would take the animal and put it on the table of the Lord and burn it. And the sacrifice itself, even here in Leviticus, is often called the bread of God. It would ascend into his presence as God's bread. And so God eats his portion of the sacrificial animal as it ascends to him in smoke. And he shares part of that same meal with the worshiper and his, and his clan and his family. So worship, that is sacrifice, doesn't end with the death of the animal, but it ends with communion. That is a meal shared at God's table in his house. So I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, God's presence is associated with a feast, right? It's associated with a lavish banquet, with fatness and abundance, again and again, satisfaction. Here's how one psalmist describes the experience. This is uh, Psalm 65, verse 4. Next slide, please. It says, How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you, to dwell in your court. So it's talking about the tabernacle. So how blessed is the person who gets to go to the tabernacle and worship God? He says, we will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. So God welcomes the worshiper into his courts, that is the courtyard of the tabernacle, through the sacrificial animal. And there, it's sacrificed. Part of it's burned to God. They eat the other part. And they are satisfied with the goodness of God's house. The worshiper gets to eat the fat and drink the sweet in God's presence. Have you ever been to a matanza? In uh, high school, I had a friend whose family did one every year. And so I spent the night one time, and we got to you know, go through the whole thing, wake up at four in the morning, blast the pig, cut it up and, you know, spend literally the rest of the day to like four in the evening preparing. But then after, it's a great time, right? It's the same thing. What happened at the temple was the same thing as a matanza. The animal, in this case, a pig, is slaughtered, butchered. It's prepared in various ways. And rather than a mere celebration, right, <laughs> an opportunity to just get drunk, uh, the, the animal would be offered to God in sacrifice. The best portions would be sent up to him. They'd be burned. And everybody below right, gets to eat in gladness and simplicity of heart. That's what happened at the temple every day. You would go to eat in God's presence, to share with your family. It's so, it's so beautiful. It seems so strange and weird, but when you can understand in those terms, hopefully it makes sense. And then lastly, having been reconciled to God in the slaughter of the sacrificial animal, having symbolically entered his presence through its burning and having shared a meal at his table through its eating, the worshiper is sent out in blessing. The priest would pronounce these words over the worshiper. Next slide, please. Numbers 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You would enter into God's presence through your substitute. You would eat your substitute in God's presence, and he would send you out, the priest would. God himself, rather, through the priest in 
blessing. So what's the purpose of sacrifice? Well, it's not what we think in maybe a secular sense. I sacrifice my desires now to get something better later. That's not the biblical concept of sacrifice. The purpose of sacrifice is that it's the means by which we can draw near to God. If you're going to come to God, you have to enter through sacrifice. And what does it mean to draw near to God? To enter into his courts. Well, it means to eat and drink in gladness and festivity at his table and in his presence. The purpose of sacrifice is restored fellowship, restored blessing, and restored access into the very presence of God. And that's what they would experience every time they went. So now that our field trip to the tabernacle is through, the next point that we want to come to is the fulfillment of sacrifice. Now the inner meaning of sacrifice can be seen And that the sacrificial animal, whatever was offered to God, had to be blameless and without defect. In other words, as we mentioned, what pleased God was not the flesh and blood of an animal, but what it represented, a life offered up in complete devotion and love to Him. Now, throughout its history, Israel forgot this. It forgot that sacrifice stood for something deeper. And time and again, the people began to trust in the sacrifice itself, supposing that the flesh of bulls and the blood of goats was the thing that pleased God, that what he really wanted was just this animal. In other words, what happened was that the sacrifice was disconnected from the worshiper. The ritual act was disconnected from love and obedience. And they thought, well, God just, it doesn't matter about me. All God wants is the bull or the goat or so on and so forth. Thus, the sacrifice became worthless. And God would raise up prophets to go speak to his people. Isaiah, who says, what are the multitude of your offerings to me? What I want for you is to defend the poor and to watch out for the widows and all this other stuff. Through the prophet Hosea, next slide please, God says again to Israel, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what God really desires and what he really delights in is not the sacrifices themselves, but what the sacrifices symbolize, love and obedience, blamelessness and righteousness. Again, the sacrifices didn't get the job done. God is not pleased with the blood of bulls and goats. These sacrifices were more instruments and teachers than they were anything else. You could imagine bringing this, 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 the best animal from your flock, presenting it, and, and knowing that it had to be blameless. You'd imagine as a worshiper what that would have communicated to you time and again, what God requires, a holy life. So in other words, to be truly reconciled to God, that is, to be welcomed into his presence and to be able to eat at his table, the inner meaning of sacrifice had to be fulfilled. 
Not the outward symbol, but the inward meaning. Because a blameless animal without defect was not going to cut it. Rather, what needed to be offered to God was a human life of complete devotion and obedience. And that is what Jesus came to do. To fulfill the purpose of sacrifice in the sacrifice of himself. And he retraces and he fulfills every element of the sacrificial worship that we just considered. Right, so there was a definite order to how things were done in the tabernacle. And Jesus, in his sacrifice, fulfills that order. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the scripture says. John chapter 1, verse 29. A lamb unblemished and spotless, Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus was presented before God's holy gaze, and he passed the inspection, as it were. His holy life was what all the blameless animal sacrifices pointed to and what they waited for. A life of complete and utter devotion to God. And as the worshiper would place his hands upon the head of the sacrificial animal, making it his representative, so Jesus came to be our representative. To be and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The Son of God became the Son of Man. He became as one of us. Tempted in every way, just like we are, to offer up His blameless life, not for Himself, but in our place, that we might enter into God's presence through Him, through our sacrifice. Moreover, Jesus is the Lamb, yes, but the Lamb who has been slain. Revelation 13, 8. His blood was spilled and taken, not into the tabernacle made with hands, sprinkled upon the physical objects in the courtyard, Rather, his blood was spilled and taken into heaven itself. Atonement was made, as the author of Hebrews says, in the true holy place. And sin was taken away once for all through the sacrifice of the perfect life of Jesus. And as that sacrificial animal was burned on the altar and it ascended into God's presence as a pleasing aroma, so the scripture says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Christ gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus ascended into God's presence, not in smoke, but in the spirit and in his resurrected body, a pleasing aroma to the Father. And we are accepted in God's presence in the burnt offering that is Jesus' perfect love and obedience. And then in culmination, as the sacrificial animal was consumed by the worshiper in the communion rite, so Jesus has given us his body and blood to be symbolically consumed in the Lord's Supper. Take and eat. This is my body. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Jesus is our sacrifice, whose body and blood in the bread and the cup are our feast in the presence of God at his table. 
we are satisfied in the goodness of your house. And then, of course, the last word is benediction. Through Jesus' sacrifice, God's favor is forever bestowed upon us through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Grace and peace are multiplied to us in his offering. His life retraces, his offering retraces those steps to fulfillment. And so Jesus' offering of his own life on the cross is forever the fulfillment of sacrifice. But his sacrifice is not the end of sacrifice. It's only the beginning. Jesus fulfills that inner meaning of sacrifice, a life offered up to God in complete obedience, and thus enables us to join in, to offer up our own sacrifices to God. So here, this is really important. It's not that sacrifice was something that they did back then that we have grown out of. Rather, sacrifice continues to this day, this very moment, only now in its perfected form. You are being built up a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, the scripture says, 1 Peter 2.5, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So it's not that Israel's sacrifice was real and ours is metaphorical. Rather, it's that their worship through animals was symbolic of our human worship. They offered the blood and the flesh of bulls and goats. We offer our own bodies, our own breath. Israel's offering of dead animals has been fulfilled in our living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So the outward form has changed. No one showed up to church today expecting to sacrifice a goat. But the inner meaning of sacrifice remains. Worship, what we come to do when we gather together, is sacrifice. So if it's not the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats, if it's not fire and blood and altar and knives and so on and so forth, what does sacrifice look like for us? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, present your bodies, your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. For us, sacrifice begins with one presentation. That is, our worship begins in the offering of the gift of our lives on the fiery altar before God. It speaks to complete and utter devotion, the handing over of our entire beings being in sacrifice to God. And it's not a once-for-all presentation, but a continual representation. Each new day, we set ourselves before Him. We offer up our lives to God as a holy and living sacrifice. And specifically, the Apostle Paul says, we present our bodies to him. 
more concrete than our thoughts or our decisions. It is the very member of our bodies, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, etc., and etc. These are given to God as sacrifice. And so just as the body of that sacrificial animal was burned on the altar and ascended to God, so our bodies are to be, quote-unquote, burned to Him in obedience. All our members are His members. They are set apart for His service. So as you continually represent yourself to God as a living sacrifice, each new day, as you surrender your life to Him, present your specific members on the altar. Hands that do not shed innocent blood, but that work hard for the purpose of giving. A tongue, not that lies and burns down, but a tongue that speaks truth and builds up. Not a proud look, but eyes that are merciful and humble. Not feet that are swift to shed blood, or they're swift to run to evil, but cautious and prudent, and so on and so forth. Offer up the members of your body. Give them over to God, and this is acceptable to Him. Our bodies are the fulfillment. When we offer them up to God, they're the fulfillment of what happened there in the tabernacle giving ourselves over to God to be burned to Him as a spiritual sacrifice. And this is a sweet-smelling aroma that rises to God's presence and that ultimately pleases His heart. So we've seen the sacrifices that took place at the tabernacle, how that's fulfilled in Christ, and then how He enables us to then fulfill them in our own lives. And that brings us to our third point, and it's the fulfillment of sacrifice part two. And it's namely how Israel's sacrificial worship is fulfilled in the church's sacrificial worship. Now we come together as a church, we do this, not primarily to hear instruction, though that is true, not primarily to share fellowship with one another, though that's also true. We come together, most fundamentally, to present ourselves on the altar as it were, as a living sacrifice to God. We gather on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of Jesus' resurrection. Before anyone has done good or bad, before anyone has done um, anything commendable or blameworthy, God calls us to present ourselves before Him in offering. That it would set the tone for our entire week. So in other words, this is not primarily a time of receiving but giving, where we fulfill that service at the tabernacle by offering up our lives to God in sacrificial worship. So I really do want to reframe the way that we think about our gathering. That is what business gets done here. We call it a service, and that is absolutely right, but it's not a service that we receive. It's a service that we give. Remember, worship is sacrificial. We are assembled here in God's presence, in the true tabernacle, in order to draw near to Him through our offering. A sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, 
the sacrifice of the first fruits of our wealth, the sacrifice of our very bodies. Our service, what we do here, is first and foremost about giving to God an offering that is worthy of his name. We come together to present to the one who is worthy of all something worthy of his name. Now, if that's what we're doing here, and if our worship is truly sacrifice, it changes everything. Chiefly, it obliterates the consumeristic attitude that we're taught to approach everything with in our society. That is, that worship is just another product to consume. It's a service put on for the pleasure of the people. Therefore, it better be entertaining. It better be practical, and it better be just how I like it, or I'm going to take my business elsewhere. But worship is not aimed to please us, to satisfy the consumer desires that we've been trained to have for everything. Rather, worship is aimed at one goal and one goal alone, and that is to please the Lord God of heaven and earth the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We assemble here not to consume a product, but to offer to God a sacrifice worthy of His name, to give to Him what He deserves. And now worship, as sacrifice, also blasts the therapeutic understanding of our service off the face of the earth. Again, our service is not designed primarily to meet our emotional needs, to make us feel better, happier, or more encouraged about our middle-class lives or whatever. Rather, in service, a duty is laid upon our shoulders. We are given a debt that must be discharged, and that is the worship of God to whom we owe everything. He's not our servant. We are his. He owes us nothing, and we owe him everything. And we gather to repay the debt of thanksgiving that we owe to his name. To offer to him praise worthy of the sacrifice of his son. That's what this is about. To serve God and to wait upon him. Now, I don't want to give the impression that worship is a joyless affair. That it's all duty, because it's not. I simply want to point out that what is required of us here is an obligation, but an obligation that springs from gratitude. An obligation that springs from gratitude. Now, we're all familiar with obligations that must be endured in family life, in work, or in something else, where you just, I got to do this, and I got to get through it, and I'm not going to enjoy it, but... I'm obliged to get it done. Sacrificial worship does not fall into that category. Now, it's certainly an obligation, more of an obligation than anything else in our lives to worship God, but it's not a chore. It's our delight. It's a response of gratitude for the gospel. Having known God as he has revealed himself in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the descent of the Holy Spirit into our lives, sacrifice is the most natural response. It is the spontaneous reaction to the glory of God. 
Sacrifice is the heart that desires to give him something worthy of his name. And that's just, we'll end here, the last point that I want to make. Our sacrifice, what we offer to God, must correspond in value to the one to whom it is given. In other words, sacrifice is not sacrifice unless it's costly. You guys remember in 2 Samuel when David is getting ready to build the temple and he wants to buy the patch of land uh, for the temple. And so he goes to the man who owns it and here's the king showing up at your door and he says, no, 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 you can have it. It's for the Lord's service, have it. Do you guys remember what David said to him? He says, I will surely buy it from you for a price for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God which cost me nothing, which don't require anything of me. And through the prophet Malachi, God rails against the priests because they were accepting cheap sacrifices. Israel would come with their lame and blind and maimed animals that were of literally no use to them, and they would offer them to God. Is this not evil, God said. He says, why don't you offer this to your governor? Right, to, to the, one of the politicians in town. Would he be pleased with you? God says, for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Malachi 1.11. But listen, it's not, it doesn't cost us anything to offer a costly sacrifice to the one who is worthy of all. It doesn't cost us anything, because I'm not losing anything. Mary is our example. Not the mother of Jesus, but Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. When Jesus was within the last week of his life, do you remember, she took what the scripture says is very costly perfume, probably somewhere near a year's wages, say $40,000, $50,000 maybe in today's money. And she took that very costly perfume and she poured it out at the feet of Jesus. And she wept there, and she wiped Jesus' feet with her own hair. And everybody there was offended. It looked like an extravagant way. Specifically Judas, right, the utilitarian that he was, said, why don't we just take this, why don't we just take this and give it to the poor? They rebuked her even for it, but it was an act of pure sacrificial worship. Jesus said, she has done a good deed for me. So I just want to encourage you to do the same. To bring an offering worthy of the name of the Lord. Not an offering from what is cheap or lame or blind, but from your very utmost, for he is worthy. And so I'd like to just invite you up now to receive the elements of communion, but to remember this is not a commemoration of our sacrifice. It's a commemoration of the only sacrifice that's pleasing to Jesus, or to pleasing to God. And we're accepted in that sacrifice. So come spend some time with the Lord, and we'll celebrate together.